Now that I think back on it, my sophomore year of high school was no more difficult than anyone else's, but somehow I still can't help but remember how awkward I was at that age. Like all 15-year-olds, I wasn't able to get a driver's license until the following summer, and to add to my woes, puberty hadn't given me my growth spurt, so I was struggling with a body that couldn't keep up athletically with my peers. This wouldn't be much of an issue in most places, but I had the unlucky fortune to attend a rural high school in the Midwest. There, athletic success was valued as much, if not more than, academic achievement. Being short, thin, and uncoordinated, I couldn't contribute on the football field or the basketball court. My classmates considered me a poindexter, even though I was just average academically. As you can guess, My appearance had attracted more than my fair share of attention from the bullies in middle school. High school was different. By then, I'd learned how to dodge the thugs, even though the upperclassmen towered over me physically. But here, in high school, there was a new emerging need to fit in socially. I had spent my freshman year searching for acceptance and looking for a group of friends, an identity, and a place in the social hierarchy. I found my place as one of the three photographers on the staff of the Jacket Journal, the high school newspaper. I soon discovered that this was an enviable position. Not only did the Jacket Journal give me a ready-made group of like-minded, non-athletic peers, this role came with a press pass, which was nothing more than a flimsy piece of cardboard emblazoned with the school's newspaper logo and the words press pass printed on it. There was no authorizing signature. It wasn't even laminated. Nevertheless, that business card-sized document was astoundingly powerful. Not only did it function as a permanent hall pass during school hours, I discovered that as long as I was lugging my camera around, that press pass gave me free access to everything in the school except for the faculty lounge. Even Wendell, the school's uniform security officer, let me pass unchallenged. 24-7, once he'd learned that I was the holder of this almighty Jacket Journal press pass. Being a photographer on the staff of the Jacket Journal paid additional dividends, too. One of my assignments was to photo shoot school events, including the big athletic events, which essentially meant football games. Not only did the press pass get me in for free, it provided me with sideline access. This also meant that the football jocks suddenly had become more friendly hoping that, in return, I'd capture one of their feats of athletic prowess with my camera so that they would appear in print. The Jacket Journal itself was quite an operation. This four-sheet newspaper was nothing less than a weekly insert in the local city newspaper. This meant that our distribution was roughly 15,000 readers and not just the 500 or so students in the high school. This was accomplished through the efforts of the faculty advisors we had. Miss Rader, an English teacher, and Mrs. Hall, who was the head librarian. The staff consisted of eight reporters, two from each grade level, along with me and two additional photographers. The other photographers, Adam and Tom, took me in under their wings when I first joined the newspaper. By the beginning of my sophomore year, these two seniors had taught me all the basics about developing our photos in the school's very own darkroom. Without realizing it, I was also learning the fundamentals of photo composition and lighting. With their tutelage, I became quite adept at developing photos 
and was well on my way growing into a competent photojournalist. As I had learned during my freshman year, one of the requirements was that I had to attend the daily Jacket Journal staff meeting at the end of every school day. This was where story assignments were made, articles were handed in and critiqued, edits were made and finals were approved for publication, all under the watchful eyes of the faculty advisors. I missed most of the Jacket Journal staff meetings my freshman year since I had to take PE instead, but that didn't matter much. I didn't have a lot to contribute as a freshman. All I needed to know was when to be where. Then, I would shoot a couple of photos of students holding up achievement awards or take pictures of the homecoming queen in her court. The real fun was covering the sporting events, but my freshman year, that was handled mostly by one of the more experienced staff photographers. Things changed my sophomore year. As a full-fledged member of the Jacket Journal staff, journalism was my sixth period subject every day. That permanently replaced physical education for the rest of high school for me. That first day of class at the beginning of my sophomore year, I knew something was up, something big was going on. Earlier that day, a statue of Athena had been kidnapped from Mr. Sertella's room, and a ransom note was left behind. Ben Sertella was a dainty, fastidious, and overly effeminate man who taught Latin and classics. Among his idiosyncrasies, he wore a button-down shirt with his trademark bow tie every day. He was a good teacher who was generally popular with his students, but he stood out as an oddball in a rural high school almost as much as anyone could. Oddly, due to a strange twist of fate, he had been a member of the same college fraternity as our school's burly, unrefined, uber-masculine football coach, Mr. Bruce. Ray Bruce taught physical education, but everyone knew he was really there to do nothing more than win football games. Given their college association, this odd couple, Ben Sertella and Ray Bruce, often hung around together, even though they were complete and total opposites. The Jacket Journal staff was abuzz with theories. Why was Athena the statue kidnapped? Who was responsible? What were the kidnappers' demands? Would the demands be met? Were there any suspects? Questions, so many questions. A reporter was about to be dispatched to interview Mr. Sertella when Mrs. Hall piped up and said, Don't bother Mr. Sertella about this. He's quite upset, and the contents of the ransom note are not going to be shared. Wendell will be handling the investigation. You can interview Wendell. A chill swept through the staff. Everyone knew that interviewing Wendell, who was generally considered to be a simian, was a complete and total dead end. Shortly after that, the three photographers, Adam, Tom, and I, were released, ostensibly to take inventory of the chemicals and supplies in the darkroom. There, in the privacy afforded by the darkroom, the two seniors couldn't contain their glee. They were all so excited, but they were wary of talking openly in my presence. Finally, my photo compadres spoke up and swore me to secrecy. Chatting between themselves, they agreed that they couldn't tell me everything, but they did tell me enough. A small clique of seniors had, over the summer, planned a series of pranks to pull throughout the school year. The kidnapping of Athena was just the first. This year, in their words, was going to be epic. 
Adam then told me that it was essential that I attend the first football game of the year, that Friday night, even though both he and Tom were assigned to cover the event. Why? He wouldn't say except to say you don't want to miss this. Curious, I asked if they knew the demands of the ransom note. They looked at each other with big grins, almost challenging each other as who would crack first. Finally, Tom told me that the only demand for the safe return of Athena back to her pedestal in the Latin classroom was that Mr. Sertella had to teach one full day shirtless. The two seniors began bantering among themselves. Do you think he'll give in? Do you think he'll do it? Thinking about it now, the demand didn't seem to be that obnoxious since we were all mostly farm boys who were used to working throughout the summer shirtless. But Mr. Sertella? Then I asked, if he doesn't give in, what happens to Athena? Adam and Tom looked at each other, shrugged their shoulders as if to say, uh, no idea. Kickoff was at 7 p.m. that Friday evening. The stands were packed by 6.30 and excitement filled the air as the two teams were warming up. It was early September and the setting sun created nice colors but made lighting for action photos difficult. I planned to wait another hour until after sundown to begin snapping pictures in earnest under a full spectrum of stadium lights. I remember that I kept looking around, anxiously pacing the sidelines, ready to photograph whatever prank I was told to expect. Adam, my counterpart, was a few yards down the sidelines going about his business snapping photos. Across the way I could see Tom shooting photos of the cheerleaders who were busy whipping the season opening crowd up into a frenzy. The only thing unusual were the flocks of birds sitting on the light poles and gathering on the roof of the jacket snack shack at the south end of the football field. As the minutes ticked on, more and more birds arrived, all jostling for room on top of every vertical object around the field. As warm-ups ended, the two teams returned to their respective sidelines. A group of three officials, all dressed in black and white striped referee shirts, marched out to the 50-yard line to meet the team captains for the obligatory coin toss. When the lead referee blew his whistle, flocks and flocks of birds descended on the field. Confused, the team of officials tried to shoo the birds away by marching around the field, waving their arms, and blowing on their whistles. That just seemed to attract more birds, which landed everywhere on the field. As the agitated referees did more to try to scare the birds away, blowing their whistles even louder and flailing their arms about more aggressively, waves and waves of additional birds swarmed in. In a few minutes, birds completely covered the field. Pandemonium ensued as the birds scurried around the football field while they were being chased by the angry officials, whistles blaring and arms flailing. Across the field, through the birds swirling around looking for a place to land, was Mr. Bruce. His arms were crossed, muscles bulging, just standing there, stone-faced and stunned. The players, helmets in hand, were all just grinning at the scene. Then, down near the end zone, about 30 yards from me was Adam, doubled over, laughing hysterically. That Monday afternoon, during the Jacket Journal staff meeting, the Athena kidnap caper was demoted from the lead story for the week and replaced with Avian Invasion Delays Football Opener, a story which was still to be written by Wednesday so that it could be typeset by Thursday and published in the Friday edition of the Jacket Journal. But just what happened? That was the question before the Jacket Journal staff. Even though telephones had rung off the hook all weekend over the incident, 
No one knew why the attack of the birds, worthy of a scene in a Hitchcock movie, had occurred. Reporters were dispatched to interview Mr. Henry and Mr. Wagner, the school's science teachers, for their theories. Adam, Tom, and I retired to the sanctuary of the dark room, anxious to develop our photographic evidence of Friday night's fiasco. There, in the dark room, I knew I'd get the true story. Adam was reluctant, but Tom could hardly wait to fill me in on the intricacies of this prank. Once we were in the quiet confines of the dark room, he explained how certain accomplices, who remained unnamed, had for weeks over the summer snuck onto the football field near dusk, dressed in black and white striped referee shirts. These pranksters marched around the field blowing whistles while spreading copious amounts of bird seed. After a few weeks, Tom explained, birds began gathering at dusk in anticipation of the easy pickings to be found on the football field. A few weeks after that, boom boxes blurring out generic crowd noise and marching band music had been added to the routine. By September, flocks of birds would gather at the football field near dusk, anticipating the distribution of the bird seed. Tom finished by telling me that by September, the pranksters were sure that their scheme would work even with a large Friday night football crowd. Apparently, the birds had been wary at first, but over the months, they had actually become aggressive in their squabbles over the food to be had on the well-trimmed field. Things moved at warp speed that second week of school. Word had gotten out that the avian invasion was actually a prank. The football coach, Mr. Bruce, was livid, mostly because he'd been embarrassed at having our home football opener delayed 45 minutes while the birds ate their fill before going to their evening roosts. On top of that, Wendell still hadn't solved the Athena kidnap caper. Now he had another, more notorious, incident to investigate. The mood among the Jacket Journal staff was one of elation. These were fun, interesting stories to research and write about. The entire staff had collaborated to piece together the avian invasion story, which included quite a bit of research along with the interviews of the science teachers. The final article had concluded that the avian invasion actually took quite a bit of scientific knowledge and superior planning. Words like operant conditioning and positive reinforcement spoke to the ingenuity behind the prank. It was obvious that Ms. Rader was pleased by the work on both the avian invasion delays football opener story and the Athena kidnap caper story. They were both, in her opinion, thoroughly researched and well-written. However, Miss Hall disagreed. Her opinion was that both stories would do nothing more than to glorify the pranksters. In particular, Miss Hall was upset that the avian invasion delays football opener story focused too much on the advanced scientific knowledge of animal behavior and the complex planning that had to have occurred for the prank to work instead of focusing on the hardships that the prank had caused. The two faculty advisors began to argue in front of the Jacket Journal staff. Miss Hall wanted to balance out the piece with text being added about the damaging nature of the prank. Miss Rader countered. And exactly what damage was that? Miss Hall barked back. The kickoff was delayed 45 minutes. A 45-minute delay in a football game is newsworthy? I understand that games are commonly delayed for thunderstorms and the like, Miss Rader calmly responded. Well, it's embarrassing, said Miss Hall. Embarrassing to who? Certainly not the teams. Just look at the pictures. It appears to me that everyone was getting quite a laugh out of the spectacle, replied Miss Rader. 
Finally, Miss Rader pulled rank and insisted that both stories be run as is. Defeated, Miss Hall stormed out of the room. That was the only time I ever recalled Miss Rader smiling. As she did, she turned to the Jacket Journal staff and said, Well, it doesn't get any more real than that. Welcome to journalism. That Friday afternoon, the whole school seemed to be excited to rush home and read that week's edition of the Jacket Journal. So much had happened, and rumors had spread about the investigative reporting, which would reveal juicy details about the avian invasion fiasco, not to mention the latest on the Athena kidnap caper. By the time I arrived home, I had several messages before I could even look at the year's first edition of the Jacket Journal. Something had happened. The avian invasion story, which was typeset to be the top story on the front page, had been replaced with the school lunch menu for the next month. To add insult to injury, the second story for the front page, the Athena kidnap caper, had also been deleted and replaced with the holiday schedule for the rest of the year. To add insult to injury, the font for the menu and the holiday schedule was triple-sized, which made the front page of the first edition of the Jacket Journal for that year look ridiculous. Over the weekend, the Jacket Journal staff went from bewilderment to anger. It had become clear that, in spite of Miss Rader's support, the articles had both been pulled and replaced before publication. All that worked for nothing. Resignations were discussed and protests were considered. That Monday morning, I was summoned from my algebra class to attend an emergency meeting of the Jacket Journal staff in the school library. Miss Hall spoke at length over the need for responsible journalism and our duty to uphold the reputation of the school within the community. The principal, Mr. Smith, then joined us. He spoke about our collective duty to uphold school policies. Miss Rader was there, standing in the back, along with Wendell, the security officer. Miss Rader said nothing. Her stiff upper lip, however, betrayed her disgust with the whole situation. Wendell, as usual, just stood there, arms folded, acting dumb. Then, Principal Smith opened the proceedings up for questions from the Jacket Journal staff. Emily Anderson, who was the senior editor-in-chief of the Jacket Journal, predictably asked the first question. Exactly where in the school policies does it state that the administration has the authority to censor the work of the students, she asked. Principal Smith looked nervously over to Ms. Hall for support. Ms. Hall spoke up, interrupting Mr. Smith's stammering. The Jacket Journal is a school-sanctioned newspaper. We, as the administration, retain editorial control over all content that is published, she said flatly. A murmur swept across the staff. We all looked at each other quizzically. Then, another Jacket Journal reporter spoke up and said the staff was thinking about resigning en masse. Miss Hall replied that anyone who didn't want to participate didn't have to, and it was early enough in the school year that anyone who wanted to could transfer out of journalism and into another subject. She then reminded us that, since many of us were planning to go to college, having served on a school newspaper was certainly looked upon favorably by college admissions officers. No one knew what to do. We all agreed to skip journalism class that day and meet among ourselves in the privacy of the dark room. There, crowded into the dark room, the discussion swirled around how angry we all were and how un-American, how unpatriotic, and just how downright bad it was to censor the press. We talked about walkouts and protests and resigning en masse again, thus shutting down the Jacket Journal. In the end, 
we all decided to return to journalism class the next day and go back to covering stories about the drama club's upcoming performance of Oklahoma and the exploits of the French club. The rest of the school, however, was not so easily mollified. Our classmates had expected to read about the details behind these pranks, but they soon heard how the stories were squashed by the school administration. Their disappointment was palpable. Tensions rose within the student body. Adam and Tom, the senior photographers, told me how the ringleaders of the pranks were particularly upset that the stories had been pulled and had vowed revenge. It didn't take long. They struck the next week. First, Principal Smith's office was targeted. Six piglets were smuggled into the school's bottom floor elevator between classes and then, when the elevator doors opened right outside the administration offices, frightened, squealing piglets bounded out of the elevator and raced into the hall, causing bedlam among the school's administrative staff. Next, a few days later, a garter snake, the unofficial mascot of Mr. Wagner's biology classroom, appeared in Miss Hall's classroom, slinking behind the flag stand in the corner of the room during freshman English. Havoc ensued as frightened freshmen all rushed toward the door in a bid to escape the eight-inch monster. Then, over the next several weeks, the pranks took a decidedly negative and destructive turn for the worse. Principal Smith missed half a day of school when, one morning, he discovered that his car windows had been liberally smeared over with Vaseline, making it impossible to see clearly and very difficult to clean off. Next, a few days later, Someone had used super glue to glue the door locks to the principal's office shut. My senior sources confided in me that the original pranksters were only responsible for the liberation of Sammy the Snake. They had nothing to do with the piglets, which they considered a copycat prank, or the attack on the principal, which they considered to be just too destructive. The administration, which we as students had always assumed to be obtuse, came down through the teaching staff hard. The message was delivered via a series of serious discussions at the beginning of every class of that day. This tomfoolery needed to stop, or serious disciplinary action would be taken, was the message. We were also reminded that Wendell, the security guard, was hot on the trail of the perpetrators. Later that day, when the Jacket Journal staff met, the first story idea that was pitched was regarding the welfare of the piglets which had been rounded up unharmed by the school's future farmers of America. A frown from Miss Hall let us know that this story wouldn't be published. Next, a story idea regarding the welfare of Sammy the Snake, who was still at large, was pitched. Once again, Miss Hall made it clear that that story wouldn't appear in print. So instead, we wrote articles about the theme for the winter formal and typeset the upcoming athletic schedule. There was no point in researching or writing about any of the follow-up didos that had occurred. Without really discussing it, the entire Jacket Journal staff seemed to lose interest in the paper. Even Emily, the senior editor-in-chief, began slacking. No reporters spent their Friday nights covering the football games, and there were no pictures of our team's exploits. The daily Jacket Journal staff meetings became procedural. No open discussions were had, and no new ideas were discussed. We all just went robotically through the motions. Even the pranks had died down. Then, one late October Tuesday, Miss Hall was absent. When the Jacket Journal staff assembled for journalism class, 
Miss Rader dismissed the substitute who had filled in for the day. After the substitute had gathered her things and departed, Miss Rader addressed the Jacket Journal staff. First off, I want to apologize to you, the staff of the Jacket Journal, for the disagreement that you witnessed between me and Miss Hall a few weeks ago, she began. Then continuing, that was unprofessional of me. As a member of the school administration, I need to keep my opinions to myself and support the decisions of the school. Miss Rader went on to explain how the world wasn't always fair or right or just, and even professional journalists had to operate within the confines of an editor and publisher. Then Miss Rader really laid into us. Your work on the Athena kidnap caper and on the avian invasion piece was top notch. Very impressive. But since then, you've produced garbage. I know you're disappointed that those stories were not published, but that was a month ago. Get over it. The quality of your journalism has to improve or the Jacket Journal and all the past hard work you put into it will become irrelevant. I remember that word, irrelevant. It hung in the air as the entire staff sat silent and motionless. After what seemed to be an hour of silence, Miss Rader walked over to the door, rested her hand on the door handle as if she was about to open it and leave. Instead, she turned around and said, Mr. Bruce has asked to speak to you a few moments. Almost reluctantly, she opened the door and, with an authoritative nod, invited Coach Bruce in. At first, Coach Bruce just stood there, wearing his trademark yellow jacket polo shirt, just staring us down. Then he began pacing back and forth in front of us while he nervously fidgeted with a whistle, which was hanging on a lanyard around his neck. After several seconds of building up his courage, he opened up. First, I want to thank Miss Rader for letting me address you, he said. I won't take up too much of your time, but I wanted to speak to you personally. I couldn't help but overhear Miss Rader's comments when I was waiting outside. She's right, you know. Nervously, Coach Bruce again fidgeted and looked down at his feet. Then he blurted out, I am here to ask for your help. After a pause, he lifted his head up and continued, I know that some of you, maybe none of you, care about football, but our football team cares about what you do. Those boys, the cheerleaders, and the marching band too, they've worked hard for months practicing for this season so that they could represent our school. In the past, the Jacket Journal has covered all of our games, home and away, rain or shine. The past two games, there hasn't been any coverage. No reporters, no stories, no pictures. All that's been in your paper are the statistics. Coach Bruce paused and took a deep breath before continuing. Only a couple of these boys have any chance going on to play in college. This high school team is all most of them are gonna have to remember. When they see their names in the paper because you wrote about them, I'm telling you, every single one of them has a proud mother or father who will cut that article out and keep it safe in a box for them somewhere so that they can show their grandkids when their daddy scored a touchdown or made an interception. That's why I coach, so those boys can have some good memories to look back on. I'm asking you to go out there this Friday night and every Friday night and do what you do best for this school and your classmates. Thank you. Coach Bruce then nodded his head a couple of times and whispered something to Miss Rader as he departed the room. Miss Rader then returned to the front of the room and eyed each of us over. After a few seconds, she said, Well, we have a paper to get out. Now get to work. Adam, Tom, and I left the rest of the staff as we made our way to the dark room. 
Once we were out of earshot, Tom spoke up. Did you see that? Coach was almost in tears, having to ask us for help. Yeah, replied Adam. I never expected to see that. That was rich. Then, as Tom used his key to unlock the dark room, we were surprised to see the lights on. There, leaning against the wall in the back corner, was Wendell, the security guard. Hello, boys, he addressed us. Come on in. We have a few things to talk about. Stunned, Adam and Tom's heads drooped as they went before me. I hesitated, wondering if Wendell had seen me. You too, he motioned to me. I have to say, I enjoyed your first couple of pranks, but now we're going to make a deal. The way I see it, you and your other reporter friends there, you seem to know everything's going on in this school. I can just forget about what you've done if you return that statue to Mr. Sertella's classroom and you start telling me everything you know about those other pranks, along with anything else you think I need to know. It'll just be our little secret. So, what do you boys say? <laughs>